Open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, please. We're going to read the same text that we read last week. We couldn't quite uh, make our way through the whole thing last week, and if you caught my drift from a week ago, I was anxiously awaiting to finish the text this morning because I consider the, uh, the, the fun stuff or the, the, uh, the, the good stuff from the text to be in this week. So last week was, you know, it was, it was okay, right? But um, uh, this week we want to really dig into what I think is what Paul really wants to have us know out of this text as he's continuing. You know, to be quite honest, this is still in some way a bit of an introduction uh, to uh, the whole letter. He's, uh, but as Paul always does, even when he's introducing and saying hi, it seems like he throws in these, these theological statements and, and these wonderful truths of, of, uh, of uh, who we are in Christ or what Christ has done for us or what he wants from us, or those kind of things. But nevertheless, let's, uh, let's just jump in. Uh, let's read Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through the end of the chapter, through 23 today. For this reason, Paul writes, for this reason, since he heard of uh, their hearing the word of truth and, and believing it and becoming believers themselves, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places." far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, we have the same title as last week. I chose to entitle this, Enlighten the Eyes of Your Heart, because I believe that is the central premise of what Paul is trying to get across with this text. He says, since I heard of your faith, I have not ceased to give thanks, and we covered some of these things last week. This is what built towards where we're going to go this week. I, I have not uh, ceased to give thanks to the God, and I'm praying to God. I'm continually asking God for these things. I'm asking that God would give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation through the knowledge of him. In other words, as you get to know Christ better, or as I ended with last week, as you begin to acknowledge Christ more and more, like you acknowledge that what God has done through Jesus is what every one of us needs, and that we have no other hope other than Christ, and that Jesus is exactly who the Bible says he is. As you begin to acknowledge that more and more, that through that process that God would do this thing that he calls enlighten the eyes of your heart. He said that you may, having the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. Remember we talked about this, it's kind of weird phrasing, but that the deep inside you would have illumination. Not just your brain, but deeper than that, you would have illumination. Now, what we didn't really get to get to last week is what he's really after is the reason he wants us to have illumination, the reason he wants light to come deep down inside of us is the phrase I'm going to fill in there at the bottom yet because it's the next phrase in your text. That you may know. 
And this is what we have to talk about today. Everything that Paul has led up to to this point of this text, he's saying, I've heard of your faith. I'm praying for you. I'm giving thanks for you. I'm asking God for these wonderful things. But here's why I'm asking. I'm asking God that light would penetrate deep inside of you. The knowledge of him would penetrate deep inside of you so that you would become aware of some things. And here's the things that you would know. There are three of them. They're laid out real nicely in the text right there. Actually, if you caught them when we read through them, there's not much more I have to teach. This is, this, is not a, this is not a brilliant insight as to something you've never seen. You can read the text. It's all right there. There are three things that Paul wants us to know. And three things that I'm going to bring to you this morning and say, I think you and I should know this deep down at the very core of who we are. I think they're the underpinnings of our life in Christ. They're the undergirdings, they're the guiding rails of our life in Christ. And in some regard, you might say it's just a restatement of what he's already done when we looked at the first, uh, the text before that, when we had those three glorious in hymns, right? In him we have redemption through his blood, in him we have obtained an inheritance, and in him we were sealed with the Holy Spirit. However, I'm going to tell you that I think if, if we were to leave it there, which you could do that, by the way, you could just overlay the three things we're going to talk about and say, oh, he's really just kind of talking about those three things and restating them. I think we would be missing what Paul really is trying to say. Because I think it does do that, but it actually, in restating, he actually enlarges and he, and he, and he I would say he lifts higher the knowledge of what he wants us to know in him. We are to know these things as we get to know Jesus Christ. Here's the first one. It's the very next phrase. The eyes of our heart enlightened in verse 18 that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. At first glance, this is a pretty straightforward statement. And I think it is a fairly straightforward statement. Paul, well, the Holy Spirit really, wants the Ephesian believers and the Holy Spirit today wants you to know the hope to which he has called you. But I think it bears a little bit of time with us just sort of wrestling with or thinking about what is this hope that he's talking about? What is that that God has called us to? What is the calling that God has for every believer in Jesus Christ? And you would not be wrong to immediately start naming some things that we've already covered, right? One of our central hopes is that we have forgiveness of our sins, right, through Jesus Christ. You would not be wrong to point that out, to say that is a hope that we are clinging to. I tell you, that's, that's as weird as it may sound, that's not enough. I don't think that's everything that Paul is driving towards. You might say this hope that we have is that we will someday be rescued from this world of sin and darkness and evil and be brought up and caught up into glory and spend eternity in heaven. And that would be true. And that is a great hope that every one of us has, I hope. I hope that we all have that hope. But I still tell you, even that I don't think quite gets to where Paul would be at when he writes this sentence. For there is a, a hope that I think it does encapsulate those things, the forgiveness of our sins, the glory of heaven. But I tell you, I don't think that's actually entirely what Paul has in mind. He says, I want to raise your vision even higher. I want to raise the bar even higher. Listen, church, I was having this conversation. I don't even remember with who, but it was really recent. Maybe one of you in here. So if it was you, I'm sorry that I didn't forget that it was you. Oh, that I forgot that it was you. But I think far too many times we lower the bar 
what, and I said this before, maybe another way to say this, what can I get away with, or what, how, how low, how far away can I get and still be okay? And what I see in the New Testament Christianity and Scripture is that the bar is continually raised. It's continually brought higher and higher and higher. What is this hope? Well, let's just, let, let, me, let me first go to 1 John because we're going to get a little glimpse of it there. I'm going to read just a few surrounding verses. 1 John chapter 3. Again, you have all the references of what we're covering today in your handout, at least for the most part, unless something comes sort of spur of the moment, but for what I'm, I'm planning to share on the backside of your bulletin. 1 John chapter 3 verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. So we're still talking about this knowledge thing. That's why I wanted to include those verses. Then you look at what he says in verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And then look at the next verse. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. In other words, we're starting to scratch a little bit at the surface of what is the hope we're called to. It's not just, like, it's not just enough to say, well, Jesus died for me, so my sins are forgiven. So if I, if that's my hope. I just, just squeaked in, and I received Jesus' blood, and my sins are forgiven, and now I can rest on my laurels. I can, I can coast until I come to the other great hope I have, which is someday I'm going to be rid of all this mess around me, and I'm going to get to go to heaven. Whew, can't wait for that. No, this is saying, I don't know exactly what it's going to be like, but we know that when Jesus appears, we shall be like him. We're going to be like him. But I want to go back to Paul because Paul, you know, he wrote Ephesians, but he also wrote some other letters. And in his letter to the Philippians, he says this in chapter 3. He says, I'm going to tell you, church, there's one thing that I do. There's one thing. I forget what lies behind. I'm straining constantly towards what lays ahead. And I'm just going to read the rest of it so I can, don't paraphrase. I'm going to read it right. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Well, again, we have to stop a bit and ask ourselves, what is the upward call of God in Christ Jesus? Is it redemption? Is it the purchase of your, uh, of your soul, the repurchase of your soul, the, propiti the propitiation of, your, of, of, of you, of your sins, that Jesus paid that for you? Is it the upward call like we think literally like going to heaven? It's, it's always up there, right? So like, is, it, is that the upward call? Is that what Paul was talking about? I would tell us what? Purification. I would tell you, actually, Paul tells us exactly what he's talking about if you read the verses that come just before that. He's actually, I read it, it's a bit unfair because I read it to you before I, before I read the other verses, but if you'd be reading the book of, of, of Philippians uh, chronologically, you would, uh, you would actually have read the answer already. Let me just flip there in my Bible so I can read it for you. Philippians chapter 3, I'm going to start in verse 7. But whatever gain I had, he just listed all the stuff that he could have counted as his gain. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, for Jesus' sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. 
that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now, I picked a few phrases out of what I just read and put them on the screen for you to help us understand what I think Paul is saying is the one thing that he strains toward. What is the upward call of God in Christ Jesus? And in Ephesians, what he says is the hope to which you were called. It is to know Christ to gain him and be found in him. Those are not, not necessarily new things yet, but look what he's building towards. He says again, to know him. And finally, he says, it is to become like him. I will tell you, brothers and sisters, this morning, it is my position from Scripture, from understanding Scripture, that the high calling, the hope to which you were called as a believer of Jesus Christ, a follower of Jesus Christ, when he's put his faith in Jesus Christ, is that your hope is to become like him, is to be Christ-like, is to be conformed to the image of his son whom he loves. You see what I'm saying about the bar being raised? It is no longer sufficient for us to think, well, the Bible says Jesus loves me and he came to die for me and I received that salvation and now I can live how I'd like to until he calls me home. Because the Bible is equally clear all those things are true, by the way, up until the last part what I said. The Bible is equally clear that what that calling is that he's placed on your life to receive is to become like his son. To be conformed, as I said, is to become like Christ. This is the hope to which he has called you and I to be like Christ. If that leaves any of us feeling like we have, as the phrase goes, big enough feet to fill those shoes, I suggest you're in the wrong place this morning. Make sure you heard me, because it's not like I want to get rid of you. I want you to understand that if that does not leave you feeling like, <laughs> I'm supposed to be like Jesus, and I know what I'm like. I know the interactions I had with my wife this week and my family this week and other people. And I know the things I thought this week. And I know the selfishness I put on display this week. I'm supposed to be like Christ. Woe is me. <laughs> right? How far do I have to go? You see, you understand, we all know this up here, but you understand that when you know this deep down inside, that is why it's absolutely fundamentally incorrect to ever spend any time comparing ourselves to each other. Because that's not the measure. That's not the bar. It, I, it doesn't matter if you are more holy than the person sitting next to you. Because the call of Christ in your life is the hope that he's placed in you is that you can become like him. In fact, he wants that. He wants you to become like him. Well, let's keep that there. And we're going to go to the second one. The second one reads like this. Paul says, I want you to know the hope to which he has called you. I also want you to know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now, I didn't put the last phrase up there, but it really belongs with it. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance? Now, again, at first glance, I think it's probably very natural for us to just take that phrase and read it back to verse 11 that we talked about a couple of weeks ago and say, well, in Jesus Christ, we've obtained an inheritance. So this is, again, talking about the glory of our inheritance that is waiting us someday when we get called home. By the way, that's true. There's a glorious inheritance waiting for us. I spent time two weeks ago talk, talking about that, and I don't diminish that in any way. 
I would ask us to read that, that phrase very carefully, though. Because it says, and these words are there in the Greek, it says, he wants us to know what are the riches of his, emphasis mine, of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Whose glorious inheritance? Whose glorious inheritance? Well, to do that, we have to read all the way back, right? So one, we could go to the phrase right before that because it's the hope to which he has called you. So who has called you? It's the same, it's referring to the same one, right? The he and the his are the same. You actually have to go all the way back up to verse 17 since Paul writes such long sentences. You have to go back to verse 17 to find out that he says, I'm praying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, would give you spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him uh, through the, by enlightening the eyes of your hearts so that you may know what hope he, God, has called you to and what the glorious, what are the riches of his, God's glorious inheritance in the saints. So what is this phrase actually saying? This phrase is that Paul wants us to know that we, the believers, the church, those who place their faith in God, in Jesus, I should say, our God's glorious inheritance. That God, how do I say this, is pleased or wants you. He loves you and he, you, we, us, we are his glory. Now, I, I don't know, I don't know what that does to you, but to me that does the same thing as the previous statement does actually. It, it elevates the call so much. Again, we're not talking about some little like, oh, Jesus died for me and now I just, I get to skim by. Is that, is, is that a sufficient, glorious inheritance for God that I'm just skimming by and, and doing the, the least possible? Is that the kind of glorious inheritance that God of the universe gets? No. That lifts that so much higher. We are to be God's glorious inheritance. And I'm going to tell you, uh, this happened, maybe it's not going to be happening to you, but this happened to me as I sat at my desk studying this stuff is because of my cultural background drummed into me. I, I, it's hard for me. I don't, I don't, it's hard for me to receive or accept this. We can't talk about that because it makes us feel like we were lifting ourselves up. And I'm going to tell you, this has nothing to do with lifting us up. Let me tell you why. I'll tell you why we are called God's glorious inheritance. Look at the rest of Scripture. Did God not create us in His image? Well, of course He did. Look at Genesis 1.27. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. We're in His image. Is God not jealous for us? Of course He is. Now, this verse is directly for the Israelites, but I believe all of us would say it applies to all of God's people. This is why we should worship no other God. Exodus 34, 14. For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Why would God be jealous for something that he doesn't really desire and want? Did God not love us when we were still sinful? Did he wait till we were perfect and then he said, now I can love you? No. Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see how this has nothing to do with us? None of these verses are talking about us. They're all talking about God. He created us in his image. He is jealous. He is the jealous one for us. While we were still sinners, he died for us. Did God not come to us? Or did we have to go to him? Did God come to us? Yes, he came to us. He saved us. He rejoices over us and exalts over us. All of those things come from the very same verse, one of my favorite verses in all of the Bible. Tucked away in the minor prophet. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you. Hear it, church. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. 
he will exalt over you with loud singing. I'm positive, I'm positive, because I love this verse so much. I'm positive that we have talked about this verse in this congregation. But I invite you again to think about what it must sound like for the God of the universe to exalt over you with loud singing. What does it sound like when God sings at the top of his lungs? Listen, I love, I love, one of my, actually one of the, well, I love playing drums too, but one of the reasons that I love being up here during worship time is because I love hearing the, the, the church sing. Now I get some of that down there too, but it's a little different. I love when you sing loudly. I really do. All of you know this about me, I can't sing. So I love hearing good sing, and, I, and many of you can sing really nicely. At least compared to me, you can. I love when we sing. I love the expression of joyful singing. But I'm telling you, the most beautiful voices we have here, singing the most beautiful song in, in the most gorgeous way, how do you think that compares to when God sings over us? I think I asked this to you, and I don't want to take too much time with this, but I think I asked this to you when I shared, talked about this before, and quite likely some of you weren't there, so I'll just say it again. Have you had moments when you have quieted yourself enough, and you've gotten rid of distractions enough, and you have hidden yourself in God enough as you've been reading His Word and praying to Him and have heard God quieting you with his love and rejoicing over you. <laughs> I'm telling you, we need to. We need to. I don't know how else to say. There's like not words, but it, is, it, it, it must be. It must be incomparable if the one who created you is rejoicing over you. Right? What, what, what pleasure could you possibly compare to that? <laughs> what, what, what could come close? And that's not that we live for pleasure. I don't, but I certainly think we should have those moments, those times. I, I honestly think it's mostly because we have very few times that we ever quiet ourselves enough before him. I think we have way too many distractions. I think we're far too busy. I think when we go to have a quiet time with the Lord, it's maybe still an electronic device, so we're still getting pinged with this and that or this that comes in, or we still have our phone by us. It can be tough, I understand. I'm, I'm a parent. I'm in the middle of my devotion some morning, and I have kids that come running into my office and want something. But I'm guessing we do not experience the nearness of the Father and the glory it is of, of Him rejoicing over us, his saved ones. And again, this, I mean, all of this, I didn't even get to this, but all of this should leave us with the exact same mindset as the psalmist, right? Because we know, who, I know who I am. And he said this, the psalmist said this, right? What is man that we're mindful, that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? But I return to the fact that it is one of the things that Paul says, I think you ought to know deep down inside. You ought to know deep down inside that God has sent Jesus Christ to redeem you so that you have this calling of becoming like Christ and that when you are in Christ, that you, 
and we'll get to this in a little bit, but I'm just going to open the door a bit. And I, I really, we need to read this as a plural you, not a singular you. But that you, we, the church, the saints, are God's glorious inheritance. It will be his crowning achievement in heaven. Look at these that chose to follow. Still aren't quite sure? Go back and read the very first part of the book of Job and see how God responds as he starts talking about Job. You understand that in the presence of all the angels and Satan himself, what is God doing? What is he doing? What does he say? You tell me what he says. You know, you know the scriptures, don't you? What, is, what does God say? Somebody said it. Have you considered Job? Look at him. You, you, have, have you looked at Job? This is God saying it. Have you looked at Job? Have you considered his right way of living? Have you seen what a crown jewel he is? This, this is a bit of my paraphrase. So I'm, I'm adding to it. It's not scriptural. I mean, it's not right out of scripture. But have you noticed what a crown jewel he is for me? Of course, Satan was determined to ruin that, right? And God was okay showing the glory of who he is and his power and his might and the, and the glory of those who faithfully follow him by saying, Satan, you may do these things to him. Because what could bring God more glory when, than when Satan brings everything he can to bear against the saints and the saints remain faithful? I'm telling you, those who are in heaven in the book of Revelation, they are God's glorious inheritance. They're dressed in white and they're singing his praises, but they are to him a glorious inheritance. You and I can and should be part of that, want to be part of that. This is a high calling. You notice it's elevated, right? Look at those two things. Where does that leave you? How do you feel right about now when I tell you that Paul wants you to know, the Holy Spirit wants you to know deep inside of you that God has called you to a high calling to be Christ-like and that you are to be God's glorious inheritance. That someday you are to be the one that God says, look, look what I've done through Jesus Christ and look, look at this. That leaves me feeling uh, like I don't measure up. Leaves me feeling rather weak and rather frail and rather like that's, that's really far away. There's a few other notes I'd like to make, but I'm just going to leave that because I think it's time to move to the final point because I think there's a reason that Paul says the last thing he says. Knowing where that leaves us and how that makes us feel powerless. He says, the third thing I think you need to know is you need to know how immeasurably great God's power is. Because if right now you're thinking, I'm to be like Christ, <laughs> never gonna happen. I'm God's glorious inheritance. Have you seen me? I'm pretty tarnished. Paul says, I want you, I beg of you, I need you. I'm praying that God would open the eyes of your heart that deep down inside you know the immeasurable greatness, two hyperboles, two, two strong words, the immeasurable greatness of his power at work 
among the saints. That God's power cannot be thwarted. Those two words, hooperbalo, further than you can throw. Literally, that's what that means. Further than you can throw. The immeasurable. It cannot be measured. You cannot measure God's great, uh, his power and the greatness, the megathos. Of course, we get the word mega from there. And he puts the two words together and says, I want you to know that the power of God in working the saints is far more than you would ever think possible. And I say these kinds of things all the time. Take God's power and think as highly as you can and say, you still have not gotten there yet. You still have not arrived. His power is immeasurable. It is unstoppable. And it will accomplish what he has to accomplish. And the sooner or the better or the, the, the more that we realize that his followers inside of us, the better off we'll be. Because what I'm telling you is not that you're to be Christ-like and you're to God's glorious inheritance. And I better shape up and, and figure things out. It's that I better realize in my weakness that is exactly how it is because God's power is the one who will do this in me. God's power is what will take me from where I know I am to what he says I will be someday. That is the upward call of God in Christ Jesus that I'm going to hang on to. I'm going to forget what's behind. Listen, are you willing to forget what's behind? We don't have time for this subject this morning. I think, <laughs> we don't have time. How sad it is how many times that God forgives us of things and we don't forget. We don't let go. We don't forgive ourselves. We, we don't have time for that subject. The immeasurable power the immeasurable greatness of God's power at work in his saints. And then Paul gives us what he thinks is, and I think is the best example that he can. Because what did God do? As he worked that power in Christ Jesus, two things. He was dead. He was in the grave. Life had ended. Three days passed. And then he brought him back up out of that grave. He brought him back out of life. Now, again, they're just like us. They, they, view, they viewed like death down here and heaven there. So he brought him first out of the nether regions to the living again. But the second thing is equally important because then he took him from here and seated him at the right hand. Moved him up to the highest place that there is. This is to show that God's power cannot be thwarted. It cannot be stopped. You can devise whatever plan you want to. Satan can try, and he did try. He devised whatever plan. He did everything he could. He thought he had come to the end, and he probably might have even thought that he had conquered, had, had won. But God's power can't be thwarted, can it? Death could not contain him. The grave could not hold him. And he brought him out of the grave, and then he elevated him and sat him at the right hand, where he is now seated and is far, look at that, he is far above everything else he names there. He is far above all rule and all authority and all power and all dominion. So that word all, what does that mean? It means all, right? Yeah, that's a pretty easy answer. It means everything. So pick whatever rule, power, authority, dominion you think exists in the world Known world, spiritual world, doesn't matter. Think of whatever dominion, power, rule, or authority you can possibly think of. And God has put Christ far above. Not, not like, like slipped in just in front of them. Like far above all of those. I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, I don't think we have a clue. I don't have a clue. The immeasurable greatness of God's power. probably why we flub around so much down here and vacillate back and forth and wallow through our, our sins and our addictions and our whatever. 
<laughs> this is what this is what God wants our eyes to be open to, the eyes of our heart, to know deep down inside. I can't say it any other way. He put Jesus above all things. He put all things under his feet. And I want to look at that last phrase there because I, I, I love this. It's like Paul's like, I'm making a point. I'm just going like, to hammer it home. I'm just going to bring it. Like, I'm just, I'm just going to keep piling it on because I need you to understand. He put all things under Jesus' feet and he gave him. God gave Jesus as head over all things to the church. That's a really key part of the phrase. It's a really key part of the introduction to the rest of the letter, by the way. He gave Jesus as head over everything. Jesus is the ultimate authority. He said those same words, right? Right before the end of, end of Matthew, read them. We call it the Great Commission. The very first words out of Jesus' mouth in the Great Commission is what? All authority has been given to me, right? He gave him as head over all things to the church, to us. The church is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let me just sit for a moment with this word, fullness and fills. Replojo, like overflowing is actually what that means. Scripture has a lot to say about this in reference to Christ. Let me just read through a couple of those references. I'm going to try to bring it back to the point he's making here. But let's just focus, first of all, on Jesus himself. Colossians 1.15 says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And a few verses later, he actually uses the word. He says, in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Everything you know about God, every, every power you can attribute to him, all that fullness was pleased to dwell in God. In the next chapter in Colossians, he says this then. For in him, in Jesus, he says kind of the same thing. The whole fullness of deity dwells in bodily but then he goes on and adds this to it. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So he's picking up some of the same themes and he wants us to realize. So, so, so just, just allow your brain to do a little logical extension here. In Jesus, all the fullness of God dwelt. Right? Any argument with that yet? Can we disagree with that? I just read it, so I hope you don't disagree with that. <laughs> That'd be a little awkward. In Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells bodily, and we have been filled in him. So when God fills something, do you think it's a few drips to make sure it goes around to everybody? Does he ration things? Does he say, oh, we might run out? When God fills something, how, how, how do you think God fills something? If you were to draw a picture of God filling a bucket, how would it be? How would you draw it? Yeah, right? Full and overflowing, right? Hey, doesn't he kind of say that, right? Like you could try to give away, and he says, I'm just going to give back. Shaken down, pressed down, and overflowing, right? Whatever measure you use. God put all of his fullness in Jesus, and in Jesus we are filled. Now I'm going to just jump ahead. I don't usually do stuff like this, but I'm going to jump ahead. Just, just a couple of verses that are going to be coming in Ephesians. We can't take time to talk about them, but I just want you to see they're there because it's going to be a theme that Paul is trying to get us to do. So we're going to spend time with it later yet. Ephesians 3.19 says that he wants us to know, hey, he wants us to know more things. He wants us to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Look at that. By the way, just another way of saying that we are to become Christ-like if you think about it right? If all God's fullness dwells in Christ, he wants us to also be filled with all the fullness of God, which is to say he wants to become Christ-like. We are to become Christ-like. This is a chapter later in 4.13. He says, 
Now again, I'm kind of jumping in the middle, but he says, we're, 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 until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Hey, friends, if you've not heard it already this morning, there is going to be nothing in this letter as we go forward studying the book of Ephesians that will lower the bar of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Nothing. It will only raise the bar. It will only call us to a higher, a greater fullness of Jesus Christ in us if we're willing to follow it. Sometimes when I say things like this, I, I don't want it to be misinterpreted. So I want to be very clear. I long for and want and I'm so glad for every person who's here this morning and who calls us, who may not be here this morning, but calls us their church home and comes. I want you to be here. I want you to come. I will be equally clear that it is my and our role as leaders in the church to continually raise the bar of what it means to follow Jesus Christ. And I'm full aware, aware that that may cause some people to say I'm not interested. I don't want that to happen. I'm telling you it's a reality as you follow Christ. And I will tell you equally, because I think it's in best, my best interest to be as completely honest and vulnerable with all of you as I can be. That's hard for me because I love to please people, which means compromise is always, is always something that's on the table, right? So... In that sense, you can help keep me honest to say, if I say the bar is raised, then I don't want to lower it. I don't want to bring it back down. I don't want to say, well, that part doesn't apply, which I and we have been known to do. Now, I don't intend for this to be some kind of like beat you over the head or like strong, if you're not here right this second, then you might as well just leave. I just want you to know that this is what Paul is introducing. I feel it with everything inside of me. This is what Paul is introducing that we're going to get to. I've read the letter of Ephesians lots of times, lots and lots of times. And I'm so excited because I know with confidence there are going to be things that as I study that I have never seen and understood before, or I'm going to see them in a different light that are going to come to the congregation here. I'm very excited about it. I hope you can tell. Like I'm very excited about it. But I also know it's going to Oh, it's going to do exactly what I just said. It's going to raise the power until we are all filled to the fullness of power. Let me just restate that last to make sure we get it in our heads. God gave Jesus to the church. We are Jesus' body, and we are the fullness of him. We're the fullness of Christ. It is Christ who fills all in all, and we are his fullness. So again, just follow logical extension. That is the picture of what the Bible intends the church to be. And so let me say it again. This is solidly in the territory of the church, not individuals. None of us from our text today should go home and say, I am what God is really excited about. The saints, the church, what God is doing through his body is his glorious inheritance. We together are that. 
Maybe if I could be so bold as to even extend that beyond this specific church so that we don't get some kind of arrogant complex thinking we have it all nailed right at Riverview and the other churches have it all wrong. I think the body extends far, far more than these walls right here. We may be even some, missing some pieces at this point still of what God intends. But that is the point. There's all kinds of things there yet, and I'm going to tell you we're going to get there, but I need to wrap this up. We're going to get there as we continue going through Ephesians. Hopefully, if you have questions, you guys know this, right? If you have if something, just come talk to me either afterwards. Call me or text me. I love meeting people, having conversations. And I'm okay having discussions and studying stuff before we get to it on a Sunday morning. It can only help. It can only help as we, as we dig through stuff together. It's not like I'm going to say, hey, hang on. We can't talk about that yet because we're only in chapter one and that you're talking about chapter three. Let me give you a glimpse, just two other, I love, I, I, as tying it together, I want to, I want to just uh, uh, bring two other passages to bear that kind of restate some things, hopefully tie it together for us. I'm just going to read them for you this morning. Romans chapter 8, verses 28 to 30, we're going to hear some of the same language that's being used, the same language of calling. Uh, I didn't have time to go into it, that, that word is showing up everywhere, maybe we'll get into it some other time, I'm sure it's going to show up yet in Ephesians as well. Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. In other words, that Jesus might be the firstborn. He can only be the firstborn among brothers if more of us become like him. Do you understand? That's what Paul has just said. He said Jesus will only be the firstborn. If, if there are not more of us that become like him, then he's the only born. Right? He's the firstborn, meaning he's the first one. And there are many more that should become like that. So that we, he might be called the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Let me then also go to 2 Corinthians. Again, two different, uh, sort of different references. But uh, I think they're talking about the same type of topic. And so I just want to bring them home to us today to summarize. I'm not going to make comments about the text. Just as a way of supporting what we've talked about. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12. Since we have such a hope, and he's talking about a new covenant, not the old covenant. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Now just stop for a moment. So what was happening? When Moses walked into God's presence, what was happening? What was happening? When he walked back out, what, what, what was happening? His face shone. What does that mean? It means God's glory was still there, Right? I would tell you, in the, in the context of the phrase, we use, he was becoming more like God because he was in God's presence. But it was too much for the Israelites, so they asked him to veil his face and cover himself because they did not want to look at what the outcome was. That, by the way, is an indictment on them. That's, that's not a kind, that's not a, that's not a, that's not a comm commendation or a pat on the back of the Israelites. That's, that's an indictment against them. May it not be so for us. But their minds, verse 14, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. This goes right in hand in hand with the eyes of our hearts being enlightened. A veil lies over their hearts. Verse 16. But when one turns to the Lord, when one acknowledges Jesus, when one gets to know him, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Uh, we could go all afternoon, friends. 
Because so many times we quote from this and we talk about the freedom we have in Christ and we completely take it out of context. We think the freedom we have in Christ is we can do whatever we want to. And I'm telling you the exact opposite point is being made. The freedom we have in Christ, according to this text, is that when we are in Christ and we are in his presence and we're no longer veiled before him, we are becoming more and more like him. So unless your freedom in Christ makes you more like Jesus, then you are not talking about biblical freedom in Christ. Did you hear that, brothers and sisters? Unless your freedom in Christ is making you more like Jesus, you have not actually experienced freedom in Christ. You are a slave to the passion of your flesh. Because what I read in these verses is that if the Lord is a spirit and with the spirit of the Lord is there is freedom, I mean, we're seeing him with unveiled face. We're no longer, there's no longer a barrier there. And the very next outcome is in verse 18. When we behold the glory of the Lord, we are transformed to be like that same image. We become like him. Let's close today by reading. My, uh, <laughs> you might sense the, the, the struggle here, and I, and I, I I'm, I'm, I'm sensing a, a, a holding back for me, not because of you, please understand, because there's lots of things running through my head, but I want to make sure, I want to be careful that I am faithful to the text of the book of Ephesians. So I have every degree of confidence that many of the things running through my head are going to come out as we continue, but I would like to let the Lord unfold that and not me walk ahead. So let's read through our memory verses, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. If you have, I was going to make more cards. My apologies. I forgot to make more of these uh, bookmarks. And so you, if you still don't have one, I'm, I'm sorry. There was one or so laying back there when I came in this morning still, but they might be gone now. If you want to follow along in your Bible, if you don't have one of these cards that has it printed out, it's Ephesians chapter 2, the first 10 verses. Again, I just want to read through together. Why don't you stand this morning? This, in light of what we are to know as our eyes of our hearts are opened and there's light that comes inside of us that we know the hope to which we're called, we know the glorious inheritance that we are, that the saints are uh, to God, and we know the immeasurable greatness of the power of God at work in us, bringing us to those two high bars. As we know that, I think these verses especially uh, are, are, are the... The, the battle cry we have because we know where we were and we know what God wants to do with us and that's why this, this is why we can read these. They will be, of course, the very next text we're gonna get to next week, Lord willing. Read with me if you would, Ephesians chapter two, verses one through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, 
so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God, my prayer this morning, however it came out of my mouth, whatever accuracies may have been there thanks to you and your Holy Spirit, and despite any errors that might have been there thanks to my humanity and my blumbering around, I pray, God, that the eyes of our hearts may be open to understand what you have to say to us through this text this morning, that we may know the hope to which you have called us. What is our portion to be like Christ? That we may also know what is your portion, that we are your portion, that you long for us. That's why, as Albert shared with us in sharing time, that precious to you is the death of a saint. And, God, more than anything, that we would know the immeasurable greatness of your power at work in us who are in Christ Jesus. Oh, that is where... That is where so many of us need to continue to die and lay down our own lives and strength because until we do, we do not walk in your power. And it is in your power that we find this immeasurable greatness that we find change in our lives, that we find us to be like Christ, that we find us to be the glorious inheritance you speak of and desire. Help us to surrender. Fill us with your spirit. Ah, I can just say those words and, and they roll so small-like off of my tongue, God. But we talked about being filled in Jesus Christ, all of your fullness dwelt, and then you want us to be filled. So when we say, fill us with your spirit, God, we're saying, fill us with you, with all of you, and that which was in Christ, who walked perfect and blameless before you. Oh, that we would yearn for it and reach for it and surrender and allow you to work through us. I thank you for the way that you've sealed us through the Holy Spirit keeping us, <laughs> guaranteeing us for the day that's to come. Oh, we, I, we see so, so dimly, we see so dimly now, God. Help us through the Spirit to have the eyes of our hearts enlightened that we may know these things and we may walk in the truth, becoming more and more Christ-like. All of us who hope to become like Christ someday who have that hope, we purify ourselves as he is pure. Oh, help us to keep that true, Father. We look to you in Jesus' name. Amen.